Well, hello, and thank you very much for joining us here on the Jazz Focus, a podcast that uh, hopefully explores some interesting corners of jazz recording history. My name is John Clark, and very happy to be with you again. Hopefully you're uh, tuning in again, but if this is your first time, welcome, and uh, hope you enjoy the program enough to check out some of our other podcasts. So today is going to be a little bit different. I'm organizing this around a specific theme, and uh, I guess the theme is road trips. Uh, Back in the 1920s, if you wanted to make a recording, or if your band was hired or or contracted to make a recording, generally you had to go to where the microphones were, to where the recording studios, and those were, for the most part, up until the late 1920s, in major centers like New York, Chicago, there were a couple of little regional places like uh, Richmond, Indiana, which had the Janet recording studios, and uh, places like that. So you had to travel if you wanted to make recordings. Well... In the early 1920s, of course, uh, suddenly the recording companies, even the big recording companies, came to understand how uh, marketable the uh, jazz and blues recordings that were produced by African-American artists were. And that African-American audiences and white audiences, too, would buy recordings by people like Mamie Smith, and then a little bit later King Oliver and Bessie Smith and people like that. So, of course, they wanted to capitalize on that interest, and they would uh, start bringing in uh, black and white artists playing in the same type of uh, style. Some of it went back earlier to the uh, style of the original Dixieland jazz band, the first jazz band to record, uh, and they were testing the waters, seeing what would uh, what would fly and what wouldn't in some ways. 1920 was the year that uh, we usually think of as the beginning of the race records industry, and that was because Mamie Smith was given the opportunity uh, to make a recording, and she was an African-American cabaret vaudeville theater singer who could sort of give you an impression of a blues singer, and um, her mentor, Perry Bradford, uh, basically talked his way into the OK recording studios in 1920 and got Mamie Smith a recording date, if you want to read all about that uh, very interesting period. You can read Perry Bradford's autobiography or Willie the Lion Smith's autobiography or any uh, collection of of blues pieces as well. So when uh, she recorded The Crazy Blues in August of 1920, uh, interestingly, almost exactly 100 years from when I am doing this podcast right now, uh, it was tremendously successful. Uh, It supposedly sold about 75,000 records in the space of a month, which was unheard of at the time. So naturally, recording companies wanted to duplicate that success. Uh, One of the recording uh, executives, or the field executives, I guess, at OK Records at the time was a man named Ralph Peer. Now, Ralph Peer is one of the more significant non-musician, non-singer people in American music. Uh, His idea, once he saw how successful this blues recording uh, phenomenon was going to be, he pitched to his uh, bosses at OK the idea of taking recording uh, technology on the road and actually packing up a a big touring car full of whatever the... um, wherewithal they needed to make recordings. And remembering this was the acoustic recording era, so they weren't using microphones. They were using horns and uh, lateral cut lathes and and wax masters and things like that. So it wasn't an easy thing. So what he would do is he would go uh, to various locations for sometimes a couple of weeks, and he would record and make test recordings of the local talent and send the masters back to OK, uh, and they would cut records that would then get sent to the area where they were recorded, and they'd see how well they did. And by and large, uh, they did quite well because these little road trips and tours that Ralph Pierce started doing in 1924 
very quickly became uh, common practice, not only with OK Records, but with Columbia, with Victor, Vocalion, uh, all these different companies uh, would go on these, these, these kind of ethnological field trips in the 1920s, and some of the most interesting jazz and blues and country recordings we have come from those trips. Ralph Peer became uh, a foundational member of uh, the country music and hillbilly music industry as well for the same reason. He went uh, off into the country and sometimes against his own better judgment recorded some of these uh, country singers and uh, performers like Eck Robertson on violin uh, who were playing music that Ralph Peer himself didn't particularly care for, but he was enough of a businessman to know that if it was a saleable commodity, then he should do it. So uh, he was responsible for a lot of different recordings. His big uh, triumph in terms of music history were the Bristol Sessions in Bristol, Tennessee in the late 1920s. I think it was 1927, and he went and made many, many recordings there over the course of a week or two. Uh, some jazz, uh, some blues, but mostly country. He made the initial recordings of um, Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman, and the Carter family uh, at those Bristol sessions, and they became some of the biggest hits uh, in all of uh, the record industry in the 19, late 1920s and 30s. Anyway, we're getting off track here. What we're going to do today is we're going to listen to some of the music that was recorded by Ralph Peer on one of, actually two of his field trips uh, to New Orleans. Now, New Orleans was even in 1924-25 looked at as being a cradle of jazz. So Ralph Peer and his uh, accoutrements went to New Orleans in March of 1924 and January of 1925. And uh, we're going to hear some of the recordings that they did. If we have a little time, we may stick a few recordings from March of 1925 that were done by the Victor Company as well. These were bands uh, that were, for the most part at the time anyway, working bands. They were playing in the dance halls of New, of, uh, New Orleans, and they were known uh, as sometimes polite groups, but also some very fine jazz groups as well. Uh, Peer also recorded a blues singer who, named Leela Bolden, who was really terrible, and so we're not going to hear that. Um, her claim to fame is that her accompanists were Steve Lewis on piano and Armand Perone on violin, uh, who later recorded with the Armand Perone uh, ensemble. We're going to hear uh, a couple recordings, or at least one recording, that they did a little bit later. So most of these recordings were by uh, white groups, at least initially. We're going to hear some African-American recordings after that. This was still a hotbed of segregation and racism and all that, and Ralph Peer definitely uh, uh, inclined towards these white jazz groups. So we're going to start out with uh, two recordings made by Johnny Detroit and his uh, New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. Johnny Detroit, I think I'm pronouncing that right, was a cornet player, and he was sort of an old-style, almost a ragtimey cornet player. He sounds to me like uh, Freddie Keppard might have sounded if he had been recorded more extensively. Um, the Detroit Band made uh, six recordings in March, 15th and 16th of 1924. We're going to hear two of them right now. We're going to hear The Swing, uh, which is in parentheses after that, called Washington and Lee Swing, and that's the popular um, college tune we're going to hear that features some very fancy cornet work, uh, almost uh, like a Herbert L. Clark type of solo by Johnny Detroit over the melody played by the saxophone. And then we're going to end up with Brown Eyes, which was a tune by Johnny Detroit himself and features a very flashy saxophone solo in the style of Reedy Weedoft. So who was in this band? Johnny Detroit was on cornet, Russ Papaya was on trombone, Henry Raymond on clarinet, Rudolph Levy on alto saxophone, Frank Cooney on piano, George Potter on banjo, and Paul Detroit on the drums. None of these musicians was terribly well known. Johnny Detroit came to be better known because he 
had a very, very long life. He lived to the age of about 95, and some of the revivalists uh, started talking to him and interviewing him and, and trotting him out every now and then as a sort of a, a hearkening back to jazz of old, which uh, I, I think he enjoyed doing. So those are the two tunes we're going to hear from this band. After that, we're going to go to a somewhat uh, similar sounding band uh, called the original Crescent City Jazzers, recording the same day of March um, uh, 17th, actually, the next day, 1924, St. Patrick's Day, and we're going to hear their version of Sensation Rag, which was an original Dixieland jazz band tune. In this band, we have a New Orleans cornet player named Sterling Bowes, who came to be better known in the 1930s, uh, recording with uh, Bob Crosby and the Bob Zerke Big Band. We have Avery Loposer on trombone, Cliff Holman on clarinet and alto, Eddie Powers on tenor saxophone, Johnny Riddick on piano, he uh, made a number of recordings later on in the revival era, Slim Leftwich on banjo, and Felix Alex Guarino on the drums. Then we're going to hear two tunes to finish up that set by uh, Johnny Bearsdorfer and uh, his orchestra. Actually, it's uh, called Johnny Bearsdorfer and his Jazzola Novelty Orchestra. And the two tunes that we are going to hear are, make sure I give them to you in the right order, Wonder Where My Easy Rider's Riding Now and The Waffle Man's Call. This is another band that doesn't have any particularly well-known players in it. Johnny Bearsdorfer plays cornet in a little bit more of a modern style, as does Sterling Bowes. Uh, you can hear some plunger-muted things that he is doing, Bearsdorfer, that sound very much like King Oliver. So in this band, we have him on cornet, Tom Brown on trombone. Tom Brown led one of the first uh, jazz bands uh, out of New Orleans to Chicago in about 1917. Supposedly he was invited by the dancer and comedian Joe Frisco, and some of the people in his band ended up being the original Dixieland jazz band. We have Steve Loicano on banjo, Johnny Miller on piano, Nunzio Scaglioni on clarinet, and Leo Ade on drums. So a uh, good mixture of, of, of uh, Italian and French in this band. Uh, these were all white musicians who were making their living as dance band musicians at the time. So this music is not what we would consider so much Dixieland. The first couple of tunes are, I guess. And uh, the Bearsdorfer tunes have some, some of those elements as well. But they're very well arranged and organized, and clearly they're not being faked. They're uh, being played as these bands probably played them on the bandstand. So those are our four tunes for right now. We're going to hear um, The Swing, a.k.a. Washington and Lee Swing, Brown Eyes, Sensation, I Wonder uh, Where My Easy Rider's Riding Now, and The Waffle Man's Call. So here we go with those. <laughs> Thank you. 
that was uh, a series of New Orleans bands, as I just mentioned. Johnny Detroit's orchestra doing Swing, featuring that fancy cornet solo, and then Brown Eyes featuring that fancy alto sax solo. None of these bands, at least so far, had any really first-rate soloists, or anyone we think of as being a first-rate soloist, but um, some very good ensemble players and some good musicians as well. So those two uh, were followed by Sensation, uh, the original Crescent City Jazzers, which was a band that left right after this recording session and went to St. Louis and uh, started playing there and made a number of recordings there that are quite good as well, with almost the same personnel. So that was Sensation, featuring Sterling Bowes in that case, who's probably the best-known soloist of the players that we've talked about today so far. And then we ended up with two tunes that I really like a, an awful lot, uh, Norman Brownlee's uh, uh, oh no, excuse me, uh, Johnny Bearsdorfer's orchestra. We're going to get to Norman Brownlee in a second. Johnny Bearsdorfer was a really fine cornet player in the uh, King Oliver tradition, and his clarinet player, Nunzio Scaglione, was really an outstanding clarinet player uh, as well, certainly in that New Orleans tradition. New Orleans always boasted some very fine clarinet players. We think of the black players who studied with Lorenzo Tio, and we're going to hear a little Lorenzo Tio coming up. Uh, people like Barney Begard and uh, Albert Nicholas and uh, people like that. But the white clarinet tradition was also very uh, evolved. It tended to sound a little bit more classical. And we're going to hear uh, a couple of uh, very interesting clarinet players, actually three of them, coming up uh, very soon. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. So moving right along, we're going to uh, leap ahead, oh, a year or so, I guess, uh, to, not quite a year, about 10 months, actually, to January of 1925. And OK and Ralph Peer came back to New Orleans. They had sold enough records to make it make another trip worthwhile. And this one, um, they recorded different bands. They didn't record the same bands, to be perfectly honest. I don't know if the same bands were still uh, in action or not. And the other benefit was they also recorded some African-American groups that we'll hear. And these are particularly interesting interesting African-American bands because they were fixed bands as well. They were working, uh, playing for some of the higher class uh, uh, engagements in New Orleans. In fact, some, in some cases, maybe they were playing some more high class functions than the white bands were listening to. So kind of interesting how the racial divide was happening in New Orleans at that point. So we're going to begin with a recording by Tony Parenti. Tony Parenti was an outstanding clarinet player who made a lot of recordings in New York in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He lived into the 70s, I believe. Uh, he was a devotee of that early clarinet tradition. In fact, apparently he had been asked to go on the road with the um, uh, original Dixieland Jazz Band, but he was too young. He was... Uh, uh, born in 1900 and they left in about 1916 or 17. He was very well uh, schooled in clarinet playing. He had a classical teacher, he had a beautiful sound, he read very well. So even by the time he was in his late teens, he was leading bands in New Orleans. And we're going to hear uh, one of his first recordings. This is from January 22nd of 1925 uh, by the OK Company. And this is Anthony Parenti and his famous Melody Boys. And we're going to hear a tune that he wrote called Cabaret Echoes. And this features uh, Henry Connects on cornet, uh, either Russ Papalia or Charles Hartman on trombone, Tony Parenti on clarinet, alto, and baritone saxes, so any of those instruments will be played by him, Tony Papalia, Russ's brother on tenor sax, Vic Lebowski on piano, Mike Holloway on banjo, Mario Finazzo on tuba, and George Trayer on drums. So this was a band that was working, I believe, at the, at the La Vida um, 
Ballroom, because uh, they did a tune called the La Vida Melody, or Medley, rather, that's coming up. Uh, we're not going to listen to that today, but uh, very interesting nonetheless. So we're going to hear this tune called Cabaret Echoes, and from that point, we're going to jump over to uh, another group called the Halfway House Orchestra of New Orleans, and they're gonna he- we're going to hear a tune called Barataria. Um, I'll tell you more about the personnel when we get to the other side of that. Then we're going to hear the Norman Brownlee Orchestra, uh, which will be playing a tune composed by its clarinet player, Harry Shields, brother of Larry Shields, and the tune is called Peculiar. And then we're going to end up with two tunes by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. The New Orleans Rhythm Kings were a uh, kind of a legendary band in Chicago in the 1920s, early 1920s. They made a lot of recordings. Uh, they made one of the first mixed uh, race recording dates when they recorded with pianist Jelly Roll Morton, um, and they were... Uh, the models for the next generation of jazz musicians, especially white jazz musicians coming up. People like uh, Frank Teschmacher and Jimmy McPartland and Bud Freeman. They listened to and were very much impressed by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. This is a slightly different version of this band that had returned to New Orleans by early 1925, but had the same feel and the same leader, Paul Marez on cornet. And we're going to hear a tune called Golden Leaf Strut, which is a Another name for a tune that was more famous uh, in their original recording called the Meilenberg Joys. And then we're going to end up with a tune by the trombone player, Santa Pecora, called She's Crying for Me. So here are our tunes for this little set coming up. We're going to hear Cabaret Echoes, Barataria, Peculiar Rag, Golden Leaf Strut, and She's Crying for Me. Thank you. 
Well, there we have some more very fine New Orleans bands being recorded by OK in 1924 and 1925, for that matter. So we started out with the Cabaret Echoes by Anthony, a.k.a. Tony Parenti, and his famous Melody Boys. Uh, I told you the personnel on that. That really featured Parenti on clarinet. Had a beautiful, beautiful sound. Um, and again, he was only about 24, 25 years old at that time. Uh, and after he left New Orleans, he went to New York. He played with um, a number of bands. Ted Lewis's band, uh, a lot of studio bands. He was a very good reader. He uh, made quite a few recordings in the early 1930s and uh, ended up playing on 52nd Street in some uh, New Orleans-style bands, Dixieland bands, what have you. And that's really how he came to be uh, best known. He was a big devotee of early ragtime as well, and he did some fine recordings on the circle label of ragtime tunes, just clarinet and piano and drums and sometimes some horns as well. So following that, we went to Barataria, which was the Halfway House Orchestra of New Orleans. The Halfway House was a, a, a dancing establishment that had a band uh, that sounded like this one. This was actually a group that had some elements of the New Orleans Rhythm Kings to it. We're going to hear the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, and uh, after that, we just did hear uh, two sides by them. Uh, as I said, they were active in Chicago in the early 1920s. Uh, the trumpeter, cornet player, Paul Marez, who was the leader, and the clarinet player, Leon Rapolo, uh, returned to New Orleans. Orleans, I think early in 1925 or late 1924. Um, Merez kind of left the business and Rapolo uh, joined the Halfway House uh, Orchestra and ended up uh, going mad actually from a variety of different causes depending on what source you read and he really didn't play much after 1925. But he was considered to be one of the best soloists of the day. He was certainly a fine clarinet soloist and we heard clarinet solos on all of these uh, last three recordings that feature Leon Rapolo. So we heard Barataria, which was co-composed by Bill Eastwood, who played banjo, and Leo Ade on drums. A banjo and a drummer combining on a tune. Go figure. Um, so the Halfway House featured Albert Brunies on cornet. He was one of the famous Brunies family. George Brunies was the trombone player with the first version of the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Joe Loyacano on trombone. Occasionally he shows up playing alto sax as well later on. Leon Rapolo on clarinet and alto. Charlie Cordella on clarinet and tenor. Mickey Marcour on piano, and then Bill Eastwood on banjo and Leo Day on drums. And clearly this was a well-organized, well-rehearsed band. They had their own thing going. Um, they did about a CD's worth of material over the next two or three years, and really very fine dance music. Not a lot of classic solos or anything, because uh, Rapolo disappeared after this one recording session, but really a very well-integrated ensemble, and, and uh, not just a, a jamming ensemble, but one with parts that had been figured out, and that's something that uh, is lost uh, by a lot of New Orleans bands these days, uh, that just, you know, play uh, contrapuntal style and, and uh, collective improvisation. These bands were really well organized in the sense that they, they had a good sense of harmony and um, how to fill out uh, the harmonic parts and make it sound like a section rather than just three or four guys all playing together. So following Barataria, we heard Peculiar, and that was a tune by Norman Brownlee and his orchestra. This was an interesting group. It had some um, players who became better known in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, the one player that we would have liked to have heard with that band unfortunately left the band very shortly before this recording was made in January of 1925. The cornet player Emmett Hardy was legendary. Uh, he was supposedly a, a big influence on Bix Beiderbecke um, and was 
spoken of in, in, in reverential tones by his uh, contemporaries in New Orleans, but he never recorded. He actually got sick not too long before this recording and died not too long after it, so sadly we don't know what he sounded like. He was replaced on this recording by Sharky Bonanno, one of the truly original, uh, colorful jazz players of his day. A lot of stories about Sharky Banana, but he was a very fine uh, cornet player and lead player and had quite a few recordings in the 40s and 50s and 60s that uh, were uh, uh, pretty popular. Along with Sharky Banana, we had Tom Brown again on trombone. We had Harry Shields on clarinet and bass sax. As I mentioned, he was the brother of Larry Shields, the clarinet player with the original Dixieland Jazz Band. And some people rated Harry more highly than Larry. Um, he was a really fine player. We didn't get a sense of it from this recording, uh, but and he made many, many, many recordings in the revival period from the 40s until he passed away, I think, in 1971. So, very fine player. Hal Jordy was on alto sax. Howard Martin was on tenor. Berman French on banjo. Alonzo Crumby on drums, and the leader, Norman Brownlee, on piano, and that was from January 23rd of 1925. Then we finished up with two by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. As I had said, they had, or some of them anyway, had come home uh, to New Orleans from Chicago, and this was kind of a last hurrah of this band. They recorded a few things, and then on the next uh, road trip uh, recording session, they did some more, but by that point, uh, Rapolo was gone, and Charlie Cordella was playing clarinet, and he was not a fantastic clarinet player, but he was a good musician anyway. So this is the original New Orleans Rhythm Kings. From January 23rd of 1925, we heard the Golden Leaf Strut, a.k.a. Mylenberg Joys, and She's Crying For Me, which here is called the She's Crying For Me Blues, although it was only partly a blues. And that was composed by the trombone player in this band, Santo Pecora, a very fine trombone player who had a long career as well. Paul Marez was on cornet, Leon Rapolo again on clarinet, Charlie Cardella on tenor, Glyn Lee Red Long, Red Long, on piano. He later joined the Halfway House Orchestra, as did the banjo player, Bill Eastwood, who we heard a minute ago, and Leo Day on drums. Also in this band was Abraham Martin on tuba. He was also known as Chink Martin. He was better known as Chink Martin. And he played string bass and tuba uh, on some of these early sessions, and he, too, became much better known later in the revival period. So we're going to go now uh, up a little bit to some recording sessions that were made by RCA Victor in uh, January of 1925. We just heard the Brownlee Orchestra and the uh, New Orleans Rhythm Kings, but we're going to hear four tracks by, an Afri by two different African-American bands. The first is the original Tuxedo Jazz Band, led by Oscar Papa Celestan, uh, who uh, was a cornet player and uh, band leader and entertainer whose career extended up into the 1950s. He led the band at the Paddock Lounge in New Orleans, which was one of the big tourist spots, and had a very successful band for many years, even when everybody else was, was hurting in New Orleans for work. Uh, Papa Celestan had work. Uh, he was not a soloist. He was an ensemble player and a leader. Uh, playing the more jazzy cornet was Kid Shots Madison here. We have William B.B. Ridgely on trombone. In the saxophone section, Willard Toomey on clarinet and alto. Uh, and tenor. I think there's another saxophonist in there someplace, um, but we'll find out. Uh, John Marrero on banjo, Manuel Mineta on piano, Simon Marrero on string bass, and Abby Chinese Foster on drums. He also plays 
uh, slide whistle occasionally. So this is called the Original Tuxedo Jazz Orchestra. Uh, a year later, they recorded under Celestin's name, but this is, these are the original recordings by this band. And as I said, they were playing some high-class jobs at the time. These were all musicians who were good readers. Um, they could play some jazz, but they were really more interested in playing high-class dance music. And so we're going to hear two tunes from that uh, band, the original Tuxedo Rag and Black Rag, which was uh, a not terribly disguised version of the Down Home Rag. Uh, so we'll hear those two. Then we're going to jump to two recordings uh, made by Armin Perone and his orchestra. The Perone band was a very high society band made up of Creole uh, African-American musicians in New Orleans. They had gone to uh, Chicago for a while, and they had stayed in New York playing at the Roseland Ballroom for quite a while and made a bunch of recordings there. But by this point in um, uh, January of 1925, they were back in New Orleans, and they were pretty much uh, the band that had gone to New York. We have Peter Bocage on trumpet, John Lindsay on trombone, Lorenzo Teo Jr. on clarinet and tenor sax, Louis Warnicke on alto sax, Steve Lewis on piano, Charles Bocage on banjo, Bob Seguire on bass, uh, and occasionally tuba, and Louis Cottrell Sr. on drums. And this is all led by Armand Perone, who is the violinist. And we are going to hear two tunes that they did, the Red Man Blues and Do Just As I Say. So this is sort of high-class dance music from New Orleans of 1925, uh, this time done by uh, a couple of the best-known and most successful African-American jazz bands of the day.
So there you have it, uh, some of the fruits of the labors of uh, Ralph Peer and uh, other recording executives who took the, the, the studio on the road in January of 1924, actually March of 1924 to January of 1925. And we heard uh, in that particular set two African-American bands. We heard... Um, the original Tuxedo Jazz Orchestra, led by Oscar Papa Celestan, doing the um, original uh, Tuxedo Rag, followed by Black Rag, which was really down-home rag. And some fine playing in there, really mostly ensemble, a little bit of a trombone solo, but nothing uh, that we would consider really jazzy solos. And that was for, a, for an, an upscale crowd, I think, more than a down-home crowd. It was a very organized type of band. We're going to hear some more large New Orleans bands on another show coming up a little bit later from a different uh, uh, road trip that uh, some of the other studios were making. And then we finished with a band that was really playing for the carriage trade, the Armand Perron uh, New Orleans Orchestra. And we heard the Red Man Blues, composed by Armand Perron and Peter Bocage, the cornet player. And uh, the last tune, we don't know who wrote that, no, not attributed, called Do Just As I Say. It might have been based on a traditional New Orleans melody. We heard some fine clarinet playing by Lorenzo Tio Jr., who was a uh, clarinet professor. He was uh, a teacher as was his brother, uh, Louis Tio, uh, Luis Tio, who uh, were from a clarinet-playing family. Lorenzo Sr. was also a clarinet teacher. So uh, they were responsible for a lot of the uh, education in New Orleans of some of the up-and-coming jazz musicians. This band, however, was really a very polite Creole dance band, and they had been around since before World War I, pretty much the same group. There was a very consistent personnel here, uh, but with the violin and the cornet lead, it was a, a very uh, ragtimey. Uh, uh, maybe a little bit beyond type of style. A little bit of blues thrown in, some other dance music as well. Apparently the band broke up not too long after that because some of the members, including Tio, wanted to play more modern uh, dance music. And Tio himself actually relocated to New York after a couple of years and played in some different groups there and may have sold some music to Duke Ellington. Uh, and then he passed away of a, some various complications in the early 1930s. So that's our little tour through uh, New Orleans proper uh, during about a year, year and a half time frame uh, in 1924, 1925. And we heard several bands that were active on the scene. They weren't just put together for the recordings. They were uh, part of the uh, fabric of uh, the music being played in the pre-Depression era, uh, the time between World War I and the Depression, and a uh, very active music scene. And of course, very different from what we think of as New Orleans jazz from a later period. So you've been listening to The Jazz Focus. Hope you've enjoyed the show. I've certainly enjoyed exhuming some of these recordings I haven't heard in a long time. I'm going to be doing another show uh, on New Orleans road trips, probably from a couple of years later, coming up a little bit uh, later as well. I think I'll be on my radio show, and I'll upload it to here after that's done. So if you have any questions uh, or if you'd like to sponsor us, please hit the little sponsorship button uh, on anchor.com uh, or anchor.fm, rather, or Spotify or any of the places you're listening to this podcast. And uh, shoot me an email at my band name, Wolverine Jazz Band, wolverinejazzband.com, and on Instagram and Facebook. I'd love to hear from you and if you have any other ideas. So hope you're enjoying these programs and uh, hope you appreciate a little more of New Orleans from 1924 and 25. Thank you very much. This is the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark. I'll see you on the other side.